Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. When you were in school, you learned about something called Newton's Law. How many of you remember Newton's Law? It was probably like freshman year in high school. For some of you, that was a long time ago, so don't hurt yourself thinking about it. But you learned about what was called Newton's Law. Isaac Newton, he lived like a long time ago, 500 years or so, and he was a philosopher, he was a scientist, mathematician, and he observed something throughout nature that he went on and called it Newton's Law. And here's what Newton's Law was. Newton's Law is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You ever heard that? So basically, like if you want to, you know, jump up, you have to push down. If you want to row forward, you actually have to row backwards. If you want to hit a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, Jose Altuve for the home run, walk off, you got to swing the bat, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. This is basic physics 101. But what's true physically is also true spiritually. Okay, here's, here's what I mean by that. Okay, that God loves you, but Satan hates you. You need to understand that this world is not all that there is, that there is more to life than just what you see. There is the natural, and then there is the supernatural. There is God, and then there is Satan. There is light, and there is darkness. There is good, then there is evil. That this world is not all that there is. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So God loves you. Satan hates you. God wants to bless you. Satan wants to curse you. God wants to heal you. Satan wants to harm you. That God has a plan for your life. And you better believe that Satan has a plan for your life as well. That God shows up. You better believe that Satan's going to show up as well. And that just like we forget about Newton's law, many of us, we forget about this spiritual law, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So some of you, you come and you are wondering, why is life the way that it is? I thought God loved me, then why am I hurting? I thought God wanted to help me, then why am I suffering? Why is there so much pain and hurts and hardships and so many difficulties in my life that every time I move forward, it's like I get pushed two steps backwards? Why is life the way that it is? It's because you forgot one of the most basic, fundamental principles, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. There is God, there is Satan, there is good, there is evil, there is light and there is darkness. God has a plan for you, and you better believe that Satan has a plan for you as well. We're going to see this play out today in the life of the disciples. Today, the disciples, they are going to enter into spiritual warfare as they meet a father and a demon-possessed son. Last week, if you will remember, they were on top of the mountain. A lot of us, we love to live on top of the mountain. As they were up on the mountain, they saw Jesus and the fullness of his glory. And the moment they stepped down from the mountain, guess what they walk into? The middle of a war. Many of you, that's where you find yourselves at. That last week you were on the mountain, this week you're in a war. Last week you saw Jesus in all of his glory, and this week you're watching in horror. Last week you saw heaven meet earth, and this week it feels like all hell breaks loose, and you're wondering, where is God at in this? What is going on? You forgot that you were in the middle of a 
war. This is actually one of my favorite things about expositional preaching. If you're new to our church, this is kind of the way we do things. We pick a book of the Bible, we study the book, we love the book, we live in the book. We start in chapter one, verse one, and then we work our way all the way until we get to the very end. So we're about 37 weeks into the gospel of Mark. We've been studying it. Here we find ourselves in Mark chapter nine. And last week we were on a mountain. Guess where we're at this week? We're in the middle of a war. And some of you, you come here today and you're like, this is not what I was expecting. Okay, just so you know, I don't make this stuff up. Okay, I didn't roll over to my wife yesterday and say, hey, babe, you know what I think would really just get people in the doors of our church? A demon sermon. (laughs) You know, I didn't just say, okay, well, Halloween's in two weeks, so let me just come up with something spooky to preach to people and maybe that'll get them. That's not what I did. I just say what the text says, and the text wants you to know one week you're on the mountain, the next week you are in the middle of a war. And many of us, we struggle and we strain to remember this because we forget one of the most basic principles. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. This may not be the sermon what you want, but this is the sermon that you need. This may not be what you're expecting, but this is what God has for you. And every single time we preach a message over spiritual warfare, inevitably there are people who are hurting and suffering and struggling and straining, and they're getting beat up and they're defeated and they don't know why, and they feel like they're to live the rest of their life just hopeless and helpless, and I want you to know that that is not true. Yes, God has a plan for you, and Satan has a plan for you, but you don't have to lose. You don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be a victim. You can stand up, and you can fight. That's the way life is in the middle of a war. So what I want to do today, if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 9. Go ahead and turn to verse 14. We're going to work our way through verse 29. The sermon title today is called Jesus and Spiritual Warfare. And I'm going to just read it all. We're going to make some observations about Satan and demons and spiritual warfare. And then at the end, I want to give you five ways for you to win your war. Okay, we're going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 14. Here's where we find ourselves. And when they, that's Jesus and the disciples, they came down to the disciples. If you remember back last week, where was Jesus at? He was on the mountain. It was him, Peter, James, John, the inner workings of the disciples. They're alone on the mountain. They're praying. Jesus is transfigured. The glory of God begins to shine through him. The disciples see Moses and Elijah, and his face is like the sun. It's amazing. And then all of a sudden, the moment is over. The glimpse of glory is gone, and it's time for them to come back down the mountain. A lot of us, we love to live on the mountain, but the mountain is only for a moment. You got to come down from the mountain sometimes, and what goes up must come down. Jesus and the disciples, they're coming down, and then they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes are arguing with them. The scribes are picking a fight with the disciples. Okay, we've run into the scribes multiple times. The scribes, they're the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They live in Jerusalem. They're the seminary professors. They're the ones who have, you know, more degrees than Fahrenheit. They're educated beyond their intelligence. They write the books of the Bible. They memorize it. They copy it. They are the religious leaders. They enforce the law on other people, and they're there to pick a fight with Jesus's disciples. Could you just think about being Jesus? He's like, I can't even go on a mountain for a day before people show up and try to start arguing with me. 
And Jesus comes down and he sees that they're arguing with him. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed. Now, that word greatly amazed is the only time in Mark's gospel that word is actually used. It's a very unique word in the scriptures. What it means is, it means that they were astonished, that they were overwhelmed. The actual, the best way I could describe it is like a 12-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber show. Like that's, that's basically what happens. And they see it and they're like, Jesus is here. And they are amazed, perplexed. And then they begin to run up to Jesus and they greeted him. Okay, and then Jesus, he turns and he asks him this question. What are you arguing about with them? The scribes are picking a fight with the disciples. And they're picking a fight about spiritual warfare. If you just think back to Mark chapter 5, we've already seen the scribes getting to an argument with this. They accuse Jesus of actually casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul that Jesus casts out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus says, a house divided against itself will not stand. What you're saying actually makes absolutely no sense. And then Jesus, he discredits the scribes on this occasion. So now they don't want to fight with Jesus because they know they're going to lose. So they want to pick a fight with who? With the disciples. He says, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them and said, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. That's Mark's word for demon. Jesus comes down from the mountain and guess what? He's face to face with a demon. In verse 17, and someone cried out from the crowd answering him and says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. That word there, son, in the Greek, what it means is a, a small child, probably around the age of five to 10 years old. Many of you are parents, and a lot of you, you have your kids in the back and redemption kids where they love Jesus, make friends, be creative and have fun. Could you just imagine your child possessed by a demon. I want you just to think about that for a sec. As a parent, you would do anything to be able to protect your children. I'm a dad. I have two girls. I have a daughter. Her name's Esther's son. She's almost three years old. And I have a daughter named Ruth Moon who's going to be born any week now. One of the greatest joys and privilege that I have is for me to be a parent. As a dad, I love my daughters. I look after them. I try to spend as much time with them. I pray over them. I have dinner with them. I laugh with them. I tickle and cuddle on the couch with them. I would do anything to nourish and to nurture and to protect and to provide and to be there for my daughters. Could you just imagine as a parent that your child is suffering and there's nothing you can do about it? That your child is in pain and you can't help them. Could you just imagine to watch the torment and the torture day in and day out over your child? And you can't help them. For this father, he must be absolutely devastated. You think, well, what does demonization look like? Mark tells us a little bit about what happens. It says, and whenever it seizes him, Okay, that word seize in the Greek is, it means to maul. That it would attack him. That it would consume him. 
that it would overtake any personality or any ability to control his own body, that his eyes would roll in the back of his head, that he would probably break out in sweats. It would cause his muscles to cramp up, his eyes to roll in the back. He goes into convulsions. He's shaking. He throws himself on the ground in violent fits. It's this idea of repeated concussive blows to the head. He's probably beating himself up against brick walls, throwing himself up on the ground. In the NFL, they say if you have three concussions, your career is over. This boy may not be any more than five years old, and this is a daily basis for him. Mauls him. It throws him down. He foams and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Luke's parallel account adds this in verse 39, that it convulses him, that he foams at the mouth, and that it shatters him. You get this idea that his personality is distorted, that he has almost like a borderline personality, like we would think about it like schizophrenia, that his, his mental state is totally impaired. He's not even the same person. This little boy, he is gone. He is totally under the control of a demon and that his shattered. And then it says this, that it will hardly leave him. It's day in, day out. It's week after week, month after month. Any moment, you're not even sure because the demon might maul him, might consume him, might overtake him. We don't know when it's gonna happen. So the father, he's probably watching over his son every single moment, sleeping at the foot of his bed, worrying and wondering, when's the next time my son is gonna be controlled by this demon? It's gotta be devastating for this father. And as we read this, we think, well, this sounds like a mental illness or maybe like epilepsy or like a grand mal seizure. And some of you are probably wondering right now, you're saying, are you saying that the demonic has the ability to control a person's body? Are you saying that sickness can be a result of demonization? Are you saying that maladies can be a manifestation of something spiritual that's happening in a person's life? Yes, I am saying that. Not every time, but sometimes, yes. That's exactly what happens. Because Satan, if he can get your soul, he can have control over your body. See, many of us, we've been sold this lie from the Enlightenment period where that there is a, there is a disconnect between the soul and the body. We have this idea that there is uh, two parts to a person. There's the soul and there's the body, and what a person does with their body has no bearing or impact or effect upon the soul. But that is absolutely not true. The Bible tells us that the soul and the body are directly connected, and there is a correlation between the two. C.S. Lewis, he writes, and he says this. He says, you don't have a soul. You are a soul, and you have a body. That what you do with your soul has a direct impact and effect on your body. This is the reason why children who grew up in abusive homes have such a high rate of mental illness. This is why, you know, young women who are very promiscuous with multiple sexual partners have a higher degree of suicide than anyone else. This is why addicts continue to get sicker and sicker. It's because their soul is sick and it manifests itself in a physical sickness. Satan knows if he can get your soul, then he can have control over your body. And this boy, we don't know how, we don't know what happened, but somehow he is internally indwelt, consumed, controlled by a demonic spirit. So what are they gonna do? This father's thinking, I gotta do something, I gotta get some help for my child. 
And so he runs up to the disciples. He sees the disciples and he asks them, hey, will you cast out this demon? And they were not able to. The father says, I brought my sons to your disciples and they prayed over them and there was nothing they could do. They did their dance, they did their song, they did their little juju, they, they prayed. There was nothing that they could do. Your disciples, they failed, they let me down, they couldn't cast out the demon. I brought my son to them and they actually did nothing. This is one of the fascinating things about expositional preaching, by the way, is that it really allows us to catch a glimpse into the story of the characters that we're, we're reading about. If you think about it, you think, why couldn't they cast out the demons? Because, man, if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus already gave them authority to cast out the demons. This isn't the first time that they've been here. This isn't the first time this situation or scenario has happened in the gospel of Mark. In fact, we already have like seven demon sermons we've preached in this series. There's 14 occasions that, that demons have been present, 22 encounters of spiritual warfare in the gospel of Mark. This happens over and over again, and you're wondering, well, how come they couldn't do it this time? How come they weren't successful this time? Here's what we read back in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. And he, that's Jesus, appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and they might send them out to preach. And he gave them authority to what? Cast out demons. And then again in Mark chapter 6, it says, And he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And when they come back from their six-month mission trip, guess what they say? Mark 6, 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick, and they were healed. There is 14 occasions of demonic activity, 22 references to supernatural spiritual warfare in the gospel of Mark, and here's what happens. They failed. They couldn't do it. They didn't do it. They, they prayed, nothing happened. They couldn't cast the demon out of the boy. And you're wondering, well, what does that mean for us? I want you to notice that their situation is a lot different than our situation. See, in this story, nobody is questioning the existence of the demonic. Okay, the father believes in it. The son's experiencing it. Even the scribes, they believe in it. Right, religious leaders back in that day, they had all sorts of weird incantations and rituals they would do to be able to exercise demons. According to rabbinic tradition, they believed that they could do this. They're not saying it's impossible. In fact, in Mark 5, they accused Jesus of doing it, but just through the power of Satan himself. For the scribes, there was all sorts of different ways that they could cast out demons. It didn't really work. It was more like you saw on Poltergeist or you know, Rosemary's Baby, weird, crazy incantations. What they would do is... They would take feces and they would rub it on a person's face and they thought, oh, well, they could just cast the demon out through the nose. Where'd they got the feces? I don't know. Another thing they would do is they would feed a person raw fish guts. And the more fish guts you ate, maybe you would throw up the demon. If that didn't work, they would remove a portion of your skull, like an ancient Hebrew lobotomy, and then they would take the skull, and then you would expel the demon from the top of your head if you didn't end up dead, and then they would put the skull around your neck, and you would wear it as an amulet to be able to ward off demons for the rest of your life. Didn't work. There would be pagan priests there in a Gentile region. 
Maybe the pagan priests would be able to do something. I just want you to know that every single person in this story, they actually believe in demons. Their problem is a lot different than our problem. Our problem is this, nobody believes it. You say, I don't really believe that stuff. You're just trying to scare me. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. Right? That was 2,000 years ago. We're so much more you know, evolved. We have medication and science and reason and rationale. I mean, we're so more socially evolved than them. No, we're not. We're just spiritually deceived. If you think that this stuff is not real, you are blind. This stuff happens all of the time, but we become so numb and so desensitized to the supernatural and spiritual warfare, we just spend $20, watch a movie, and call it date night. It's all the same. Satan is real, demons are real, the war is real, and they're ever just as much active today as they were 2,000 years ago. So you would just say, oh, well, people are crazy. Or you would say something like, well, maybe they're just homeless, or maybe they're just drug addicts, and you know, they don't really, it's not real. Maybe they're just the way things are. Maybe that's just what they're going through. Maybe they're not crazy. Maybe they're not just hearing voices. Maybe they really are hearing voices. Maybe they're not really just addicts. Maybe they're being spiritually attacked, and instead of judgment, they need deliverance. Maybe they're not homeless, maybe they're being haunted and they need you to be able to love them, to be able to lead them, to guide them, to pray over them, and to do warfare over them. Are you saying that medicine's bad? Nope, not saying that. If you take medicine, please take your medication. There's nothing wrong. Medicine is a gift. For many, many years, I took medication. Take medicine. Are you saying therapy is bad? Nope, go to therapy, right? Plenty of good licensed professional counselors who would love to be able to help you. Please go get therapy. It does not make you weak. You're actually getting help and you can be strong through that. Are you anti-science? Nope, pro-science. But here's the problem, is that many of us, we have therapy for the mind, we have medication for the body, but nobody knows what to do with the person's soul. And that the government, they should worry about the welfare, and doctors and nurses and physicians should worry about the health care, but us as a church, we need to do warfare. That this stuff is very real. Satan is real, demon is real. That this war is very real, and this life is not all that there is. That God loves you, Satan hates you, there is good, there is evil. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You need to know that. The same stuff happens even here in our church. Okay, in our church, we have seen this. Now, we don't talk about it a lot, okay, because we don't want to be known as the demon church. Right, that's not a good reputation to have. Oh, you go to redemption? That's where all the demons go. (laughs) Welcome to redemption. Life changed through Jesus. Bring all your demons. Like, we don't talk about it a lot, but I can tell you, we have seen this. One of the first counseling sessions that I ever had as a pastor here in the church was with a young woman who was repeatedly raped by her father, had an incestuous relationship with her brother, and now that she's 20 years old, at night she will totally black out, wake up in a bed with a strange man, don't know who they are, don't know how she got there, that's demonic. 
We had a woman in our church who, before Jesus, she was involved in Wicca and had a bunch of different statues from pagan religions and had the Buddha statue, had the Om symbol. And then she became a Christian, and when she came back home, all of a sudden, shadows on the wall, dogs barking all through the nights, and then the statues and the false gods that she had in her house began speaking to her. She said, I don't know what to do with this stuff. I was like, get rid of it. So she brought it up here to the church, and she gave it to me, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll take it. <laughs> so I go home, and my wife's like, what's in the box? I'm like, demon paraphernalia? <laughs> joys of being a pastor's wife. <laughs> I've had people heckle me while preaching. We've had people come forward for prayer, fall down, slithering like a snake, screaming like an animal. Had people in community groups, skin turns white, eyes roll in the back of their head. People in group don't know what to do. They pray over them, wakes up, has no recollection of what's happened to them. This stuff is real. Now, we don't talk about it, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. We just don't want to give Satan more credit than what he deserves. But you need to know this, that this stuff is, this stuff is real. Satan is real. Demons are real. The war is real. And the disciples here, they believe in it, and they just can't do anything about it. Many of you, that's where you find yourselves at today. You find yourself struggling and straining and maybe you've discredited it, maybe you've disbelieved it, maybe you're deceived by it and you're in a situation in your life where you don't know what to do and then you fail. Well, here's what we see happens next. Well, why did the disciples fail? They turn and they look to Jesus and say, we couldn't do it and here's what Jesus says. Oh, faithless generation. Why did the disciples fail? Because somewhere along the line, they had become faithless. They've walked with Jesus for two and a half years, and they've become faithless. They've healed other people, and now they're faithless. They've cast out demons before, and now they're faithless. They've seen Jesus do incredible things, and now they're faithless. Jesus says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You get the sense that Jesus here is frustrated. I mean, Jesus, he's frustrated. He says, why have you become so faithless? Have you gotten so used to following me that you don't actually have faith in me anymore? I think this is an important question that we all need to ask ourselves in this life. Is your faith as strong today as it was last year? Or have you gotten so used to being a Christian you don't need to have faith in him? Are you walking in the same power that you had last year? Are you walking in the same authority that you had last year? Are you as on fire for Jesus as you were last year? Is your faith growing every single day? You need to know that last year's miracles will not sustain you for today's opposition. That the victories you had last year will not sustain you for the moment that you're in. They can build your faith, but they will not sustain your faith. You cannot live on last year's miracles. You cannot live on last year's faith. You cannot live on what God did for you yesterday. Yes, it can encourage you, but you gotta get up. You gotta keep moving. You need to have faith for today. Now, not just for yesterday, not just for today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and every single day after that. Have you become so used to following Jesus that you no longer have faith in him?
It's an important question we all need to ask, that our faith should be growing greater and greater and more and more every single day. The disciples have been following Jesus so long that they actually don't have faith in him anymore. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. In the presence of Jesus, the demons begin to manifest. One thing you need to understand is that Satan is a defeated enemy. While, yes, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, God and Satan, they are not equals. That God is infinite, Satan is finite. That God is all-knowing, Satan, he doesn't know everything. God is all-powerful, Satan might be powerful, but he is not all-powerful. God is creator, Satan is creation, and that God has already defeated Satan. That in the book of Revelation, it tells us that God, in a war in heaven, cast Satan down into this world where he comes and brings the battle to earth. He tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve. They, they give into the lie. They're deceived. They fall. You and me, subsequently, we're rebellious in our nature and in our essence. And then Satan, he has the ruling of this world. But then Jesus comes, and he brings the battle to Satan in the temptation. He's already defeated him once in the wilderness, and then over and over and over over again through the gospel of Mark, what we see is that Satan or demons are no match for Jesus. That Jesus has already won the victory, that the battle has already been won, that through Jesus, you and me, we are victorious, and that Satan is a defeated foe. And just in the presence of Jesus, the demons begin to manifest. Now, some people, they'll, they'll read this and they think, well, you know, I'm just going to follow Jesus, then I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. The closer I get to Jesus, the less spiritual warfare I'm going to have to do, so I'm just going to get closer to Jesus. That's wrong. Actually, it's completely the opposite. That the more time you spend in his presence, the greater spiritual attack you'll take in your life. And then some are like, oh, well, maybe I just won't spend time in his presence. No, then Satan just has you where he wants you. You're no threat to him at all. If Satan's not attacking you, you really need to question whether or not you're walking with Jesus. Clinton Arnold in his book, Three Crucial Questions on Spiritual Warfare, he says this. He says that a Christian will no more encounter Satan and demons than a gardener will encounter snakes. If you're gonna follow Jesus, it's gonna happen. If you're gonna walk with Jesus, it's gonna happen. And so you need to know what to do when you find yourself in the place of war. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And as he begins to pray over him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell, and he began to roll about, foaming at the mouth. So chaos is taking place. The whole crowd is around them. The disciples, they're right there. The father, the son, everybody's watching. And then Jesus does something that I think is amazing. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus, turning, looking at the father, he says this. How long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. I want you to think about something. That Jesus not alone is powerful enough to heal this boy, but he's personal enough to get to know the father's story. See, Jesus, he's not worried about the demon. 
demon can flop on the floor and grind his teeth all he wants. Right now, what he's concerned about is the heart of the Father. How are you doing? You think about the Father and what he's gone through and what he's walked through, that Jesus would be powerful enough to cast out the demon, but personal enough to say, I care about you. I'll worry about that in a sec. But I want to hear your heart. I want to encourage you. I want to speak life into you. He's powerful enough? Yes. He doesn't just say, abracadabra, I'm busy, let's go. He sits down and he says, tell me your story. And the father responds, he says, it's been like this from childhood. That it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Maybe this boy is covered in scars. Back in that day, they would cook by open fire. So anytime a fire's around, think about it, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you got a little boy who's trying to commit suicide. Or maybe they're around water and the demon tries to seize him and throw him into the water. Think about the father, just you can't sleep at night because you never know when it's going to happen. He doesn't even mention a mother, so maybe he's a single dad. Luke's account tells us that this is his only son. And I just imagine the father breaking down in front of Jesus, saying he's been like this since childhood. Parents, can I encourage you to pray for your kids? Parents, can I encourage you to do spiritual warfare over your children? Some of you are thinking, well, they're kids. They're innocent. It's really not that big of a deal. I want you to know that Satan is a terrorist, and he does not fight fair. Here, this is a little boy, and he's under the attack of demonic forces. Many of you, you pride yourself on having a handgun or having some sort of weapon, having security alarms for your house, taking care of, providing, protecting over your family. If you would do that for your home, why would you not do that for their souls? If you would lock your door and have a security alarm to keep intruders out, why would you not do the same thing over the life of your kids? Your job is not just to physically protect your children. Your job is to spiritually protect your children as well. That you need to be doing spiritual warfare, praying over, encouraging, blessing, teaching the Bible to your children. Satan is a terrorist. He does not fight fair. One of the things that soldiers regularly report as they come back from Afghanistan is the children who are caught in the crossfires in war. One of the easiest recruits for ISIS or Al-Qaeda or any other terroristic regime is to recruit children, and so that way nobody knows who they're really fighting. And you think if ISIS will do that, what would Satan do? Where do you think ISIS learns that? comes from the playbook of Satan. It comes straight from the pits of hell. That is hell's battle plan because Satan knows that if he can't get the mom, he can't get the dad, he's gonna go for the kids. If they're precious to you, you better believe that he's gonna do whatever he can to take them out. If they're important to you, you better believe that they're gonna be important to him. Now, I'm not telling you that to be afraid or to be scared, but I do wanna make you aware of the importance of a parent in praying over your children. We need to pray for our kids. Because God knows he has a plan for them. That God has something amazing for your children. Just think about it. How much does Satan have to go through to get a child? 
because he's wanting to rob that child of their destiny. He's wanting to rob that child of anything that God wants to do to take them out before they're ever even strong enough or able enough or aware of the destiny that is inside of them. Parents, your children have a destiny. Parents, your children have a plan from God on their life, and it's our job to raise them up, to pray over them, to steward them, to encourage them, to disciple them, and to protect them because your children are gonna grow up one day and they're gonna change the world. And right now they may be small, but God's plan for them is big. Pray over your kids. And so the father, he, he, he says this, but if you can do anything, you almost feel the desperation rising up in the dad, right? He says, I brought him to the scribes, nothing. I brought him to your disciples, nothing. But if you can do anything, if you can just do something, he doesn't even really have the faith to, to believe that they're gonna cast the demon out. It's like, if you could just do anything, if I could just get one night of sleep, if you could just do something, if, if I could just have a day of respite, if we, could just, if we could just make it through the evening, I don't know, if you could do anything, would you please have compassion on us and help us? And in verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, what do you mean, if you can? I want you to notice, look at verse 23, that that is not a question mark. That is an exclamation point. Jesus says, if you can, what do you mean, if I can? I can do anything that I made the heavens and the earth. You see that mountain over there? I made that too. You see Satan and demons? Okay, I originally made them. They sinned, they fell, they brought the battle here to earth, but I'm bigger than them. I can do anything, that there's nothing too great for me. If you can, what do you mean if I can? I can do anything. And here's what he says, all things are possible for those who believe. How many things? Oh. oh, I think only half of you all believe that. How many things? Oh. All things. You know what that word is in the Greek? All. <laughs> all things are possible for those who believe. Do you believe that he can deliver you? Do you believe that he can break that addiction? Do you believe that he can restore your marriage? Do you believe that Jesus is bigger than your mental health issues? Do you believe that Jesus is bigger than depression? Do you believe that Jesus is bigger than sickness? Do you believe that Jesus is bigger than anything that he can do all things? All things are possible for those who believe. And then immediately, the father of the child, he cried out, and this is what he says. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Some of you, you need to write that prayer down. Put it on your mirror, and every single day, say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because some of you, you feel like your faith is too small to see God work in your life, but that's not true. How much faith does it take? Apparently not a lot. This man says, I got just a little bit of faith. Is that enough? Jesus says, that's more than enough. I got a little bit of hope. I got a little bit of belief. I got a little bit of faith. I come here today, and I'm not really sure what I believe, but I know they're going to have a prayer session at the very end, and it's going to take everything in my being to get up and go down, because I'm not sure if God's going to answer. I've prayed prayers before, and it didn't work, but I'm going to go to him one more time, and I'm going to pray this honest prayer that I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Is that enough faith? Jesus says, that's enough. And then he rolls up his sleeves, and here's what Jesus does. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The demon is gone. The torment is over. The torture is over. That this boy has been delivered. That Satan has been defeated. And Jesus, he is victorious yet again. And he doesn't raise his voice or break a sweat to do it. Jesus says, I rebuke you, you deaf and mute spirit. Get out, be gone, don't come back. Story over. Satan is no match for who Jesus is. The works of the enemy on this boy's life for however long, we don't know, but Jesus can do more in one minute than anything that anyone else could do for this guy's entire life. It's over. The dad He's overwhelmed with joy. The scribes are watching in silence. The little boy, he's got his future back. How do you think the disciples feel? Well, actually, they feel pretty defeated because they're failures. They've been praying, and they've been working, and they've been trying, and they were struggling and straining, and we don't know how long, but they couldn't do it. And then Jesus came, and Jesus did it. The boys delivered, but the disciples, they're feeling defeated. And that leads us to the last verse here, verse 28. And when he entered in the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then older manuscripts will add this, they'll say this, that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. The boy is delivered, but the disciples are defeated. They could not do it. They were failures. Why? Because they forgot one of the most basic principles that you and me forget all the time, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. They knew that God loved them, but they forgot that Satan hated them. They were with him up on the mountain, and then they found themselves in the middle of the war. They saw Jesus in all of his glory, but that was not enough to prepare them for where they're at today. They saw it, the highest of highs, and now they're in the lowest of lows, and they forgot that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And they're wondering, why did we fail? The reason is because they forgot. Some of you, you find yourselves just like the disciples. You're beat up, you're defeated, you're discouraged, and you feel like a failure, and you're wondering, why is it like hell is breaking loose? I thought that God loves me. Yes, God does love you, but Satan hates you. And you can better believe anytime God shows up, Satan's gonna show up as well. God wants to bring life, Satan wants to bring death, and you're struggling and straining. It's because you forgot one of the most basic principles. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. This story actually begins a transition in the Gospel of Mark. That this is a new section we're going to be heading into where Jesus is teaching lessons to his disciples. In six months, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified, buried, resurrect, and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He will not be with his disciples forever. And so he begins a lesson of teaching 
So from here through Mark chapter 12, Jesus is spending time one-on-one teaching his disciples. And you know what the first lesson he teaches his disciples is? Spiritual warfare. I find it amazing that it's the first thing that Jesus teaches his disciples, but it's one of the last things many of us learn how to do. You know what the first miracle Jesus ever does in the Gospel of Mark is? He casts out a demon. Do you know what the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples? He gives them spiritual authority. But many of us in our church, nobody teaches this, nobody talks about this, and so we're unprepared for when the war comes. And we feel like we're failures all the time. We feel beat up. We feel like we're halfway Christians. We're walking in the war and we don't even know it and you're unprepared for it and you're wondering why is life the way that it is? It's because nobody taught you what to do when the war comes. And so in a couple of weeks, Jesus is gonna be teaching a lot of different things. Okay, like next week, Jesus is going to teach over pride. He's going to talk about humility. We have a sermon about hell. He's going to teach about divorce and marriage and children and faith. All great sermons, but you know what the first thing he tells his disciples is? Okay, you need to be ready because you can't live on the mountain forever. That in this life, you will be in a war. And so you got to be prepared for when that warfare comes. The question is not if you get in a war. The question is when you get in a war, will you be ready for that war? So here's what I want to do as we close. I want to give you five ways for you to win your war. Okay, how many of you are tired of being beat up? How many of you are tired of feeling like failures? How many of you are tired of Satan just wearing you out, how he is making you feel discouraged? How many of you are tired of just getting hit and shot and beat up all the time? And if you're not tired, well, then you can just keep getting hit, I guess. But for those of you who are tired of it and you wanna take a stand and you wanna learn to fight back, let me give you five ways for you to win your war. The first way is this, don't do it yourself. Hey, the reason the disciples are in the situation they're in is because they tried to do it all on their own. Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation. They had more faith in themselves than they had in Jesus. They trusted more in their abilities than they trusted in Jesus' ability. They trusted more in their own strength, in their own effort, than they actually trusted in him. Spiritual warfare is not a DIY project, just so you know that. But many of us, the moment we're attacked, the moment we feel defeated or discouraged, the moment that anything comes against us, what is our first response? I've got to work harder, got to try harder, got to do better. I got myself into this. I can get myself out of this. Let me just lift with my back, not with my legs. I got to be a better person. And then we take everything on our own shoulders and we try to do it all by ourselves. Spiritual warfare is not a DIY project. Listen, the disciples here, they were trying to do ministry with Jesus. Many of you, that's what you do. You're trying to overcome adversity without Jesus. You're trying to overcome problems without Jesus. You think that you can just work harder and everything's gonna be okay. That's just not the way that it is. And the reason that many of you are fighting so hard is because you're actually fighting against God. That God wants to work and move in your life, but you're not letting him. You're actually fighting against him instead of fighting for him. If you allow him to fight for you, then all of a sudden you're going to be free. Spiritual warfare is not a DIY project. The second thing is this. Exercise your spiritual authority. 
Jesus has given you spiritual authority. The same power at work in Jesus is the same power that is also at work in you. That in Mark chapter two, he gives them authority. Mark chapter six, they use that authority. Here we are, Mark chapter nine, they fell. Why? Because they did not exercise the authority that has been given to them. Here's what you need to understand is that past victories are no subject or no substitute for present authority. Many of you, you're like, well, last year I was really strong. What about this year? Last year I I was brave, I was bold, I was on fire for Jesus. I could overcome any temptation that came my way. I was reading my Bible every single day. I went to every first Wednesday prayer night. I was active in my group. I served every single week. Last year was so great and now all of a sudden I feel like nothing's working and nothing's getting any better. How come last year was so good and this year is so terrible? Because past victories are no substitute for present authority. They were successful in chapter six, and here in chapter nine, they are failures. Why? Because they believed more in their past than in their present. How about I say it this way? If you don't use it, you will lose it. When it comes to your spiritual authority, if you don't use it, you will lose it. Now, I'm not saying that you're gonna lose your authority, but you will lose your strength. Okay, if you're a Christian, you have the delegated authority of Jesus the moment you became a Christian that your sins have been forgiven, the Spirit is empowering you to overcome temptation. Ephesians chapter two says you've been raised to new life, you've been given this delegated authority. As a Christian, that's yours. You cannot lose it, but if you don't use it, you will begin to lose your strength. In the same way, like going to the gym, working out, getting strong, building endurance. If you stop working out, guess what happens? You begin to lose your strength. And some of you, you're here, and you feel like you're weak. It's because you've stopped working out. You stopped exercising your spiritual authority that has been given to you. You have become lazy and your spiritual authority has begun to atrophy. And so now you're getting hit and you're getting beat up and you're getting shot and you feel fatigued and exhausted and you're wondering why. It's because you stopped working out. It's because you've stopped using the authority that has been given to you. Here's what you need to do. Every single morning when you wake up, every single morning when you wake up and as soon as your feet hit the floor, today is the day that I use my authority again. Today is the day that I take back any ground that I've given the enemy. Satan, you have no rights here. Devil, you have no place here. That I'm going to get my strength back. I'm going to get my fight back. I'm going to get my life back. I'm going to do battle. I got my boots on. I'm ready to go to war. I'm not on the mountain. This is a war. I'm ready. Let's do it. Every single day. Exercise the authority that has been given to you. Well, the next point is this. Use the faith that you got. How much faith does it take for you to do your battle? Apparently not a lot. How much faith does it take for you to win your war? Not a lot. How much faith does it take for you to fight back? Not a lot. You just got to use the faith that you have. This man says, I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like a lot of faith, does it? I believe, help my unbelief. But that was more than enough for Jesus to work in this man's life. You know what's interesting? Do y'all know the verse in Matthew wherever it says, if you say to this mountain, with just the faith of a mustard seed, get up and be thrown into the sea, it'll do it because all things are possible. Did you know that that was a spiritual warfare verse and not on a coffee cup? 
That's the same story in Matthew's account as we read in this one, that Jesus says to the man who the son who is demonized, if you speak to this mountain, get up and throw it in the sea, and all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. It will be done for you. How much faith? Not a lot. Many of you, you're waiting for faith the size of a mountain to move a mustard seed. You're sitting there wondering, well, what do I need to do? Do I need to take another Bible class? You know, do I have to wait five years in discipleship school? Do I need to go to a seminary? Do I have to read all the books? No, you just have to put your faith to practice. Say, but my faith isn't very strong. Use the faith that you got. Just use whatever it is that you have. Don't wait for faith the size of a mountain to be able to move a mustard seed. If you have a little bit of faith, just use it. If you have just a little bit of hope, just use it. If you have just a little bit of belief, just use it. Use whatever it is that you have. And then watch what God can do through it. Which is leading to the next point is this. Pray more and then pray again. I've said it last week, I'm gonna say it again, is that there's a direct correlation between the prayers that you pray and the power that you see. You wanna pray that the greatest weapon in your warfare is prayer. Prayer is the greatest and most powerful weapon for you to win your war. Say, well, how often do I need to pray? It depends. How much power do you want to see in your life? Okay, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of power. A little bit more prayer, a little bit more power. The more you pray, the more power that you see. That's what we see through scripture. That's what we've seen in our church. And that's what I want to see for you in your life. The greatest weapon that you have to win your war is prayer. The disciples, they go to Jesus and say, why did we fail? Jesus says, you forgot to pray. Many of you are wondering, why do I keep failing? What does your prayer life look like? Why is it struggling? Why am I not seeing God move? What does your prayer life look like? The less you pray, the less power you see. The more you pray, the more power you see. Jesus says, this kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. Big idea, pray and then pray again. That you pray and then you pray again. But here's what, here's what we do, and I know you do it because I do it too, is we say, well, you know, I'm just too tired to pray or I don't have enough time to pray. Can I tell you, you don't have enough time not to pray. And that we go around and we, we moan and we complain about the situations that we're in instead of actually praying about the situations that we're in. If you have time to complain about it, you have time to pray about it. I mean, what would happen in your life if you learned how to pray more than you complain? Now, instead of walking around saying, oh, I'm just a big loser and nothing in my life is ever going to work out and everything sucks and nobody loves me and I'm just a, just a victim and my life is so terrible and so hard. What if instead of complaining, you learned to pray? What would it take for you to realize how many crises could be averted if you would learn to pray? How many problems could be avoided if you learned to pray? What would it take for you? How many times has Satan got to keep punching you before you realize that prayer is an offensive weapon and not a defensive weapon? For you to realize that, that, that prayer is a first response and not a last resort. What would it look like in your life if you learned how to pray before the war breaks out? Prayer is an offensive weapon, and it's the most powerful weapon that you have in your war. What is your prayer life like? Jesus says, you forgot to pray. Which leads us to the final point is this. 
How do you win your war? Probably the most important thing is this. Get up and keep fighting. Here are the disciples, they learned an invaluable lesson. They failed. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They failed. But then Jesus pulls them in, encourages them, and then he teaches them. And here's what you need to know, is that failure only teaches you how to fight. Failure will teach you how to fight. You can learn more from failure than you can from success. And here are the disciples, they learned from their failure. Now, this is the last time in Mark that we're gonna encounter spiritual warfare. But this isn't the last time the disciples are gonna encounter spiritual warfare. Okay, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, the book of Acts begins with the Holy Spirit, And then Acts chapter five, we see a very similar situation. There's Peter, the other apostles, they're in the middle of a city, but this time instead of one boy, there's an entire city and region of people filled with demons. And they begin to bring all of those who are afflicted under unclean spirits, and here's what we see in Acts chapter five. It's a very similar situation. They're in the moment again. Did they learn their lesson? The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and all those who were afflicted with, what's the word? Unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Peter says, I've been here before. I've seen this before. I've done this before. And last time I failed, but not this time. This time I will fight. What do you do when you fail? You get up, you keep fighting. What do you do when it doesn't work? You get up, you keep fighting. What do you do whenever it seems like you're defeated? You get up and you keep fighting. Peter says, I've been here before, but this time I'm not gonna fail. This time I will keep fighting. Failure only teaches you how to fight. Peter says, I've done this before, and I ain't going to fall this time, that I'm going to get up. Many of you, you feel like a failure. I want you to know you are not a failure. You are a fighter. Many of you, you want to give up. You want to give in, but I'm here to tell you today, do not give up. Do not give in. Get up and keep fighting. You have an enemy, but you've also been given authority. That yes, God loves you, Satan hates you, God wants to bless you, Satan wants to curse you, God wants to heal you, Satan wants to harm you, Satan has a plan for your life, but God has a plan for your life as well. Last week, you may have been on a mountain, this week, you find yourself in the war, just keep fighting. Last week, heaven on earth, this week, all hell breaks loose, just keep fighting. Some of you, you're new and you have no clue what I'm talking about, don't matter, you'll learn it eventually, here's what you need to do, just keep swinging just keep believing, just keep fighting. You are not a failure, you are a fighter. And here's the good news, Redemption. The good news is this, that your war has already been won. You fight from victory, not for victory. That Jesus Christ has already secured it. That Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. You've received the delegated authority that comes from him. Your war has already been won. Yes, the battle may be raging on, but you are not defeated. You are victorious all because of Jesus. So here's what I need you to do, Redemption. I need you to get your fight back. 
I need you to get up and I need you to keep fighting. When you get up, you just say, today is the day that I'm gonna fight for my family. I'm gonna fight for my health. I'm gonna fight for my mental health. I'm gonna fight against depression. I'm gonna fight for my children. I'm gonna fight for my wife. I'm gonna fight for my husband. I'm gonna fight for my serve team. I'm gonna fight for my community group. I'm gonna fight against disease and sickness. I'm gonna fight against darkness. I will not allow Satan to keep beating me up and defeating me and tearing me down and telling me I'm worthless. No, today is the day that I learned to fight. Yesterday I might have been a failure, but today I will fight. We're not on the mountain anymore. This is a war. And now you know how to fight. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh!